Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, part two of my two-part tribute to the late paranormal researcher and author, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, we discuss the lives of the saints. There are many saints who were reported to levitate, which would be just kind of a little bounce up into the air. But according to stories, Joseph Copertino could uh, go way up in the air and hover for extended periods of time. This podcast is brought to you by Paranormal Contractors. If you have unwanted paranormal activity in your home or business, this is no time to be dealing with amateurs. You need to bring in the professionals. Paranormal Contractors is a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. They utilize the latest scientific technology to investigate, authenticate, and remediate your ghost or demon problem. Call them at this new number, 631-552-5835-631-552-5835. That's 631-552-5835. Email paranormalcontractors at gmail.com and tell them Richard sent you. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday, part two of my tribute to Rosemary Ellen Guiley, just moments away. And of course, since it's Friday, that means a visit from Christian D. Cadieu from Reverse Speech Radio with another amazing reversal, this one from Al Capone. Uh, just a reminder that I'll be appearing at Occulticon 2019, an amazing outdoor convention taking place up in beautiful Gray County, that's just northwest of Toronto, at the Mythwood Event Campground, and it takes place Friday, September the 13th to Sunday, September the 15th. I'll be presenting on the Saturday, and you can stay for one day or you can camp out for all three days. For more information and to purchase tickets online, go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and then click on the events and live appearances button. Or you can go to occulticon.com, occulticon.com. For part two of my tribute to Rosemary Ellen Guiley, I dipped into the archives of my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show. And we go back to April of 2018. It was Orthodox Holy Week leading up to Pascha or Easter. And Rosemary joined me to discuss one of her major encyclopedic works about the lives of the saints, their reported miracles, supernatural abilities, and their relics and remains. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? Well, I'm doing well, Richard. Uh, winding down the winter here, looking forward to my spring travels. I've got a lot of events coming up, research trips. It's uh, already been a busy year for me with the writing, editing, and publishing. Two subjects I love to discuss at this time of year, and one is the Shroud of Turin, and the other are the saints. And you you compiled and wrote and edited a, a major encyclopedic work on the saints, and I know you spent considerable time in Italy researching it. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to talk about uh, sainthood and and what it takes. What is what are what is required before someone is beatified? Well, the church now has specific procedures, and in the early days of the church, uh, you were considered a saint mostly by popular acclaim. Um, and as the church uh, solidified and became more organized, they realized that uh, they had to have a better process for it. And so by the 12th century, there were rules in place for how a holy person could be evalu evaluated for sainthood. And so now there are different levels. First, uh, someone who is um, 
like a good holy person but doesn't meet the requirements for sainthood, they're called venerable. That's a, um, a, a title that's given to some of them. But the first step to sainthood is beatification, um, to be a blessed. And um, there has to be proof of at least one posthumous miracle. Um, the communion of saints is um, intercessory. And so sainthood, um, in sainthood, the person is elevated to this intercessory capacity to channel divine energy and help to, uh, to the living who are in need of something and to bring about miracles. And those miracles are usually of a healing nature, and they're looked at very closely by the church and examined by doctors and scientists, and all kinds of documentation is considered. And then after that, um, to be canonized as a saint, there have to be at least two posthumous miracles that are demonstrated satisfactorily to the church. And <clears throat> in earlier times, um, a long time could elapse after the death of a holy person before they could even be beatified or canonized. Um, and now the process uh, is... Um, much quicker. For example, Padre Pio, who died in 1968, was canonized in 2002. And that might seem like a long time to a, to a lot of people, but by the hundreds of years of church history, that's a relatively short time. And uh, so uh, we have literally now hundreds of canonized saints in the Catholic Church. Uh, there are thousands of uh, beatified holy people and venerables and it's been the practice of more recent popes, uh, starting in, in the mid-20th century on, to beatify and canonize more holy people as uh, a way of attracting followers around the world. A lot of these um, beatifications and canonizations have been in countries that the Church is trying to attract more, uh, more followers. Uh, and... Uh, uh, so that's the formal process. And, you know, in other faiths, there are holy people who are considered saints. Um, it's not the same process that the Catholic Church follows. And sometimes just being venerated as a, a highly spiritualized person is uh, enough to get someone declared a saint. Now, I only learned this uh, last week uh, during St. Patrick's Day that, that St. Patrick is not officially recognized by the Catholic Church as a saint. That's hard to believe. Well, in, in fact, the, the Church has had a very odd history uh, with its saints and has uh, declared some of them to be um, even non-existent. You know, they've <laughs> kicked them out of sainthood. And <clears throat> Patrick was one of them. Uh, St. Christopher is another one. And some of the reasons for that are uh, what the Church says is lack of historical documentation about their lives. Uh, when we look at the histories of the saints and the hagiographies, which are embellished biographies, a lot of these were oral stories that were passed on down through the centuries, and they were probably very embellished from time to time in order to exalt the status of the holy person. And there may not be much historical documentation behind that. And uh, St. Barbara is another uh, saint that um, was removed um, from official status, and um, it's, it, it seems kind of peculiar to have saints that suddenly aren't saints because the faithful, the people who uh, have an interest in saint personalities and figures and, and even uh, practice um, an adoration of them, um, don't stop believing in them. Uh, people still wear St. Christopher medals. I have them. I have a St. Christopher's medal on the door to my office and in my car. Uh, and um, it, it's curious that the church has this official position, but that's the, the justification for it. You mentioned uh, Padre Pio, and I wanted to get into the, uh, to a discussion about uh, relics, but also uh, incorrupt bodies. And, and Padre Pio, to me, is uh, an excellent example. Uh, he died in, in 1968. Uh, but his, uh, and I don't know if you've seen uh, him in, in repose, but I, I think you mentioned you've seen some of his relics. But I, I, I'm looking at a photo here of Padre Pio. He looks like he went to sleep 10 minutes ago. How is this possible? 
Well, many of the incorrupt saints look that way. Uh, they look very, very, very lifelike, and some of that is with a little enhancement, a little wax, um, because uh, some of the body parts don't hold up uh, all that well. Um, incorruptibility is um, not a requirement for sainthood, but it's one of the things that the church has looked at over the years. And so after a holy person has been buried, they're often dug up sometimes more than once uh, for their bodies to be examined for incorruptibility. And scientists will say that, well, this is not necessarily miraculous here, and incorruption is not uh, no longer considered uh, officially a miracle by the church. But it could have to do with climate and soil and how a person died and um, the diet that they had. Uh, is there something going in Italy where uh, we find so many incorrupt saints? Uh, was there something peculiar to the geography of the land that slowed uh, decomposition to the point of, uh, you know, a body lasting a very long time? Well, from the religious standpoint, uh, this doesn't have anything to do with with all of that. It's it's sanctity. It's the sanctity of the person that then preserves um, the physical body. And uh, stories abound about how sweet odors arise from the graves of the saints, or when they are exhumed, there are these floral scents that waft out, and the bodies look so amazingly intact. Well, a lot of them are not amazingly intact. They might. Um, they might not be decomposed to the degree that the average corpse would de decompose, um, but they're not perfect either. Some of them might look a little more mummified than anything else, but uh, the church makes a determination about how well-preserved the bodies are, and uh, sometimes they are removed from their graves and they're put in these glass reliquaries where they're laid in repose. Uh, uh, there is one famous uh, incorrupt saint who is seated uh, in a reliquary, and that's Catherine of Bologna. And um, they are then venerated by the, by the faithful. Now, usually what's exposed uh, is only the head and the hands and the feet. The, the corpses are clothed. And the heads don't hold up very well, uh, and so they are often uh, enhanced with wax. And so the faces will look almost um, mannequin-like in, in some ways because they've been waxed and uh, enhanced with tints and paint. Um, the hands will often look kind of withered and, and the feet, too, kind of withered and mummified. Um, but sometimes they look remarkably fresh. And um, there are many accounts of how well-preserved saints were for a, a long time before the flesh started to deteriorate and these sorts of cosmetic things were, were then required. Um, and um, while I was in Italy some years ago researching this book, um, I toured around and visited a lot of uh, incorrupt saints um, and uh, relics of the saints. Uh, Italy is just absolutely stuffed with them. And it is truly amazing uh, to gaze upon these uh, these corpses, which are hundreds of years old, and by all accounts should be dust by now. Um, and yet there they are, uh, from the church's standpoint, preserved by their holiness. Now, many of these saints who have achieved this status, um, they were very, very severe on themselves. Uh, they practiced um, really rigorous uh, dietary restrictions, uh, they often wore hair shirts, slept on nail beds, mortified themselves, denied every earthly pleasure they could think of denying, spent hours and hours in intense prayer, had ecstatic visions, frequently fell ill, um, and were in these rapturous states where they were in constant contact with something of a high spiritual nature. And um, whether or not this intensity does something to the body, uh, it's an interesting question to consider. It is. I was just reading about Padre Pio, and again, uh, you were right. They, they did. Uh, his body was pretty much intact, except for parts of his face, which had decomposed, and they partially covered it with a silicone mask. 
they did a remarkable job as I'm looking at his, his face. It, it looked so natural. And, uh, they said that he looked like he, even that he had just had a manicure after they had exhumed him, uh, back in 2008, 40 years after his death. Now, I don't know, uh, what kind of embalming techniques they used. I know, you know, with modern day embalming, a, a body can remain uh, virtually intact for something like 30 years, particularly if they're placed in kind of a cement sarcophagus so the elements don't get to them. Uh, but, uh, Padre Pio is just, uh, a remarkable, remarkable example. Now, they don't have to be, obviously, uh, when we're talking about incorrupt bodies, we don't have to be talking about Christian saints. There are cases of Buddhist monks who die in the lotus position. I was reading about this, I think his name is Dashi Dorzo Itigalov. Have you heard about him? Well, I have, and uh, there are photographs of, of him on the Internet. It's amazing. He passed away in a lotus position while he was chanting mantras in 1927. And he requested that he be buried in whatever position he was in when he died, and so there he is. He's, uh, uh, he's still upright in the lotus position, and, and he was buried that way, and then he was ex- exhumed. Uh, twice in 1955 and 73 and found to be incorrupt and he was um, then reburied and exhumed a third time in 2002 and from the photographs you can see that the body is it is a, a bit withered and uh, the face has lost some definition but it's it's like he's was frozen in time absolutely uh, midst of his spiritual practice you wanted to talk about Catherine of Bologna. Yes, Richard. Out of all the incorrupt saints that I saw on my trip in Italy, I found her to be the most fascinating. And part of it was the journey that I had to take to get to her because uh, she's in a rather secret chapel in Bologna. Now, she was uh, a mystic who was in the order of the Poor Clares. That's the female compartment of the Franciscan order. And uh, she had the prototypical holy life with uh, visions and mortifications, uh, you know, very severe on herself. She died at age 50 and was buried without a coffin. Hmm. And 18 days uh, after her death, uh, she was dug up um, because people kept, uh, who were coming to her grave uh, to um, pay their respects, noticed this floral sweet odor wafting out of the grave. So 18 days later, they dug her up, and she was found to be incorrupt. Now, there was a little bit of skin that was hanging here and there, but it so amazed everyone, and she had this radiant look about her, and also uh, they noticed that the corpse bled as well. That was a sign that something strange was going on, actually from a medical perspective it was probably just blood that was being pressed out of the orifices as part of the uh, decomposition process but nonetheless she was in excellent shape and so she was taken out of the grave and she was placed in a seated position it's the only seated christian saint i've ever seen don't they typically bury popes sitting up um they might I, I think you're right about that, but um, the uh, the monks and the nuns, um, no, uh, they would be buried uh, like everybody in a coffin. But uh, so she's in a seated position, and uh, she was not placed in a reliquary for a, for a long time, and she was dressed in her habit um, and with a Bible and a rosary, and people came and paid their respects to her and kissed her feet. Uh, well, over the years, her skin turned black, and it's ebony black, and uh, the explanation for that is that um, the smoke from all the candles in the church uh, eventually changed the color of her skin. And today she is in this tiny little chapel in Bologna, and uh, you have to know about it uh, to go there. And it's uh, it's not advertised. I read about it in a book. Uh, when I went to Bologna, I had uh, even the tourist office couldn't tell me uh, exactly where it was, and I, I finally found this secret little tiny chapel 
where she is in a tiny little room and is only available during certain hours. And there are about 12 chairs in this room where people can come in and sit before her, and she is now encased in glass, and pray and meditate. No pictures are allowed. Hmm. So finally find my way to this little chapel, and I get myself admitted. I don't speak Italian, and a lot of these people don't speak much English, but I managed uh, to get in there. And uh, it was amazing. She, you, you were talking about how Padre Pio looks like he's asleep. Well, Catherine of Bologna looks so lifelike that, um, and her eyes are cast down uh, toward her Bible, she looks like she could look up at you at any moment. Uh, and she is extraordinarily well-preserved. Well, I snuck my camera out, and uh, being the bad girl I was... Rosemary! (laughs) (laughs) And I I started surreptitiously taking pictures. Well, um, some nun, uh, evidently they watch people in the room, and some nun came out from a door and chastised me, and uh, fortunately I didn't get thrown out, but I had to put my camera away, but I did get a few pictures, but uh, she was the most extraordinary because she's seated, um, her skin coal black, um, very, very lifelike, and not out in public. Uh, It's almost like a secret to find her. Well, I I just want to add one other little short story to that because after I visited her, I went to the Basilica of St. Dominic. It's a huge church. And St. Dominic founded the Dominican Order, and they were the big inquisitors uh, during the Inquisition. And uh, Dominic also was incorrupt, um, but most of his remains are in this giant sarcophagus, and the only thing that you can see of his body is his head, which is in a reliquary. And there are some saints whose heads are preserved. Catherine of Siena is another one. So his head is there. Well, I took a tour of the Basilica um, for English-speaking tourists, and um, the um, uh, the monk was very nice. Um, and uh, after the tour was over, I introduced myself, told him I was a writer doing some research, and um, asked if I could ask him some questions. And he said, oh, you want to see relics? I'll show you relics. And he takes me upstairs to uh, what would be the attic area of, of this huge church. It's an immense area, storage rooms, like a big department store. And it is stuffed, stuffed to the rafters with relics. Um, they also had a number of other incorrupt saints um, of, um, you know, no big personalities, but their bodies were incorrupt. They were also uh, stashed around the basilica and these glass reliquaries. Um, but up in the attic, they had body parts, bones, organs, um, and they were just all over the place. And he said, we, he said, all the churches are like this. We have so many relics, we have nowhere to put them. We don't know what to do with them. Wow. You got like it the backstage amazing. pass. I did, and it was absolutely astounding. Uh, because as, as uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, there are uh, lots of churches where they've got the finger bone or, you know, the tongue or something like that. It's kind of morbid the way some of these corpses were dismembered and their bones and organs were sent around to different churches where they could be put on display for veneration. Um, but um, Italy is just overflowing with uh, saint parts that, that they don't know what to do with. Have you had any strange experiences? Uh, I don't know, not necessarily a full-on miracle, but something when you've been in the presence of one of these incorrupt uh, saints or perhaps just a, a relic, a body part? Well, um, not an incorrupt saint, but I, I did have a mystical experience in Montreal, uh, and it was just um, a very low, not even a canonized saint. It was uh, Frere André. Oh, yes, yes. And uh, he's got, um, it's the Basilica of St. Joseph. That was his patron saint, very big place in Montreal. And Frere André, um, who... Um, uh, never made it to sainthood. He was a doorkeeper for this order, but he had a miraculous um, healing ability. And uh, he would go out and he would literally heal in, in the manner that Jesus did by telling people they were healed and by touching them. 
Um, and he developed quite a following, much to the consternation of his order, because they thought a personality cult was developing. And um, when he died, uh, he was buried in a black granite tomb inside the oratory. And people go and they touch the tomb to be healed. That's the custom. And uh, so I was in Montreal one year for a conference, and um, I uh, heard about the oratory. And uh, out of curiosity went, his preserved heart is also on display. Um, And I got in a very long line of pilgrims to go and touch the the tomb. And I wasn't expecting anything. I'd never heard of this um, man, didn't know anything about him. I was just curious. And when I touched the tomb, something happened, Richard. And I felt... Uh, it, it was a rapture. It was literally a rapture, uh, just like the saints described about being swept up into what I can only call divine fire. And I was in the presence of something highly spiritual and very transcendent. And it was, I, I felt like I was being consumed by this fiery energy. Wow. And uh, I wrote about it. It's in the introduction to my Encyclopedia of Saints. And it left me in tears. I was so overcome by this experience of just by touching this tomb, being swept up into some holy presence that I could only comprehend on an intuitive level, a spiritual level. Like They say that you can't put these things into words, and it's true. Um, now, in subsequent visits to Montreal, because I would be invited back to the same conference, um, I made it a point to go to the oratory every time and touch the tomb, and I wanted that experience. I wanted it to have it again so much. Yeah. And I never had, I, I had other pleasant experiences, spiritual, meditational, but I never had that divine fire experience again. And I think that's the case with mystical experiences. You, you have a certain experience once, and then you might have another uh, extraordinary experience, but it's not going to be the same as uh, one you had before. That's remarkable. Do you know the story of, of uh, Frere Andre's heart being stolen from the oratory? Um, back in the, oh, yeah, back in the, uh, about 1973, and they, they believe it was separatists from Quebec. At that time, there was the separatist group, uh, the FLQ. And uh, the heart was stolen and basically held for ransom. And um, the church refused to pay the ransom. I think they asked something like uh, 50000 or 500000 It was 50000 And um, they said if they didn't get it, they would destroy the heart. They refused to pay it. Eventually, I mean, the story went worldwide. And uh, they received a tip. Police received a tip. And they ended up recovering. Um, the heart in the basement of a house, I think, somewhere on the island of Montreal about a year later. Oh, my gosh. You know, I, I do recall now hearing about that, but um, I'd forgotten the details. Um, amazing, the value, you know, that is placed on, on something like this. They, these, these relics, they really are beyond value. And uh, I, I was also very impressed with um, uh, the room where the, the black tomb is, the walls are covered with crutches and canes that it's said that people threw them away uh, after being spontaneously healed by touching the tomb. Now, you would think that somebody like Frere Andre would be canonized, but uh, he's only a blessed, uh, and maybe it's because he lacks the posthumous intercessory miracles. Um, but I think sometimes... It seems that the church doesn't like personality cults to develop, and I they certainly right. treated Pio that way. He was enormously popular when he was alive, and in order to suppress his popularity, he was forbidden to preach. That's remarkable. And, uh, he was allowed to take confession, um, but he was. Um, they restricted his his access to the public. It's crazy because Absolutely. you would think that the church would want people like that to go out and, you know, galvanize the energy uh, of the faithful. More of my conversation with the late Rosemary Ellen Guiley when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. (laughs) 
It's Friday. Let's get Christian Decadure in here, the co-host of Reverse Speech Radio. Hey, Christian, how are you? Hey, Richard, I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Terrific. All right, you've got a great one for us today. We're going to uh, spend a little time uh, with some rather notorious characters. Uh, let's begin with Al Capone. So what is oh, this clip all about? Scarface, yeah. <laughs> well, this is uh, quite an interesting clip because this recording goes back, of course, to the, uh, the, the night during the Prohibition. And it's, uh, it's an audio recording of, and there's not too many of these audio recordings, of Al Capone. And he's talking about his life and when he, uh, what he did in order to make a living and growing up to the ranks and the reversals that we discovered uh, that on his uh, on his speech on Al Capone is certainly congruent with uh, his forward on this speech and the history of him being a bootlegger and uh, and making it and rising in the ranks of the um, of certain syndicate groups during the prohibition. All right. So let's play Al Capone. Here he is. We had to make a living. Give it a look in the nail. Give it a look in the nail. Give it a look in the nail. So that was Al Capone. And forward he's saying, we have to make a living or I have to make a living. What is he saying in, in reverse? Oh, so the reversal here is uh, Al Capone speaking of his unconscious is admitting which is quite congruent with his forward his forward is speaking but he had to make a living regardless if it was legal or illegal during the prohibition uh, and of course the reversal is a little game of ale ale being beer of course which was illegal during the prohibition so they were brewing uh beer illegally and uh bootlegging all types of alcohol from whiskey uh, which they were actually having a lot of it imported from Canada, of course. But uh, they were bootlegging beer uh, and uh, illegal distilleries and whatnot. So his forward clearly is he had to make a living. Uh, and the congruency is very good here because his reversal is stating a little game of ale. How about that Al Capone actually being honest for a change? <laughs> All right. Yeah. Uh, that's just one example of some of the amazing material you will hear on Reverse Speech Radio. How can they listen? They can certainly listen on the Libsyn platform, Reverse Speech Radio, uh, or they can certainly go to reversespeech.ca and click on the link on the homepage to Reverse Speech Radio. ReverseSpeechRadio.Libson.com ReverseSpeechRadio.Libson.com Talk to you next week, Christian. I look forward to it. Thank you, Richard. Bye-bye. If there's one thing money can't buy, it's sanity. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. We're talking about uh, saints. And, of course, uh, she uh, wrote a major encyclopedic work on this very subject. How long ago did that come out, Rosemary, that book? Um, let's see. That came out around 2005. Oh, it's been 13 years. Uh, I was in Italy in 2004 uh, doing a lot of the research. And it, it takes several years. I started the work on this before I went to Italy. It, it uh, takes, uh, you know, a couple of years at least to, to write one of these things. I just found it fascinating. I grew up a Methodist. Me you know, too. People Me just too. assumed that because I was writing this book, I had to be Catholic. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I, I was just fascinated by this whole process of what people feel they have to do in order to become close to God and what the saints represent in that and the things that they went through and subjected themselves to in order to achieve what they felt was that sanctity and purity. A miracle that is has been associated with a lot of nuns and priests and so forth, and even a Padre Pio who we mentioned earlier, and that that has to do with the stigmata wounds. Explain what those are. Well, those are uh, imitations of the wounds of Christ. When he was crucified and the nails were put through his ankles and feet and the hands, uh, and he had the piercing of the spear on his side and he wore the crown of thorns, these are all the wounds of Christ. And some of these holy people 
uh, they spontaneously develop these same wounds and they bleed and quite copiously. Padre Pio had wounds in the palms of his hands and in his feet that uh, bled all the time. And uh, he couldn't even close his hands because of the wounds. He had to wear gloves. And um, uh, those are some of the relics that I've seen at uh, a church in New York City. Uh, they have his bloody gloves and bloody socks on display. Um, and this seems to come during periods of intense prayer. Um, and it's a spontaneous uh, sort of thing. They, they might even pray for it. Uh, as, um, you know, to, to be visited by the stigmata, to exhibit the stigmata uh, as their way of becoming closer to Christ and, and closer to God. Um, Teresa Neumann from Germany was another example of that, um, and she also bled copiously, and her wounds actually even got infected. Uh, and once they get the stigmata, the stigmata don't go away. Uh, mm. They have the rest of their lives, and sometimes they only bleed um, periodically, and sometimes they bleed all the time. And Teresa Neumann, she, it looks like from the pictures I've seen, she actually bled from the eyes. I believe so, yes. And uh, she had head wounds. Uh, usually the, the stigmata happen on the hands and the feet. Those are the most common. But she, she had wounds everywhere. And um, bleeding from the eyes is um, not that common. Uh, it's more ascribed to statues, uh, statues that bleed oil and blood um, and uh, some sort of watery substances. But... Um, she was uh, sorely afflicted uh, during her life. Well, here's something curious, and not to in any way uh, try to undermine, you know, the authenticity of, of the stigmata wounds, because it is remarkable. But in, in studying the Shroud of Turin, for example, um, one of the things that they determined was that, that uh, Christ could not have been nailed to the cross uh, through the palms, the fleshy palm of the hand. It would have had to have been... Uh, done through the wrist. Otherwise, the body would not have supported itself. The, the nail, not to get too graphic, but would have would have cut right through the, the fleshy part of the hand. Uh, so you would think that an actual stigmata wound would be in the wrist and not the palm. And I, I have read that as well, mm -hmm. and it certainly makes sense, because you would think that the weight of the body, uh, the hands would just be torn right off. <clears throat> and why the stigmata show up on the hands is uh, is very peculiar. Um, well, because that, maybe uh, because that's the way most people consciously, or that's the way most people uh, think. Uh, all the paintings depict Christ being, you know, his hands being pierced. So that's in the in the consciousness, I guess. Do you have a favorite a story of a miracle associated with a saint? Well, I would. That's really a tough one. Most of them are healing miracles where people have been healed of cancer and blindness and, you know, chronic diseases, uh, you know, things like that. Um, some of the miracles that are associated with the Virgin Mary, um, I think, I find very interesting where there are physical phenomena and manifestations uh, that uh, also have prophecies associated with them or healing springs like uh, Bernadette of Lourdes uh, goes to a grotto, has uh, visions that um, of, of a woman in white who announces herself as the Immaculate Conception, and then a healing, uh, a spring nearby then suddenly becomes the healing waters of Lourdes. And uh, over the years, well, there's probably been millions of people now that have gone to Lourdes, but but certainly uh, thousands of cases um, where people have reported being healed or cured of something. Interestingly, there are only 68 cases that have been validated by um, a medical bureau that, that uh, looks at these cases of unexplained healing. But um, I, I find uh, now Bernadette, of course, is a saint, and so... Um, these sorts of experiences that are associated with visionary uh, phenomena um, and um, take the, um, the, the, the children from Fatima, Portugal, who were visited by uh, Mary. 
and uh, they were given uh, prophecies and secrets, and uh, people would gather by the thousands hoping to to have um, visions uh, as well. And the, the miracle of the spinning sun has become famous, where thousands yes. uh, of people supposedly saw the sun shoot off multicolored rays of light and spin around and dip down in the sky. And that was also reported at Medjugorje as well. Yes, tens of thousands uh, of people in Fatima supposedly saw that. They didn't see the apparition uh, of of the Virgin Mary. Only the three little uh, Portuguese children saw that. And that that apparition apparently extended over like a period of six months or something uh, in, 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 in Fatima. There's another apparition. I mean, we're familiar with the, the one in, in Fatima and uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe, uh, and, uh, and others. I think there was another one in, uh, Quito, uh, Ecuador. There's one that I wasn't familiar with, and it's, uh, it's fairly recent. It happened in, in, uh, in Cairo. Uh, it's called the Marian Apparition in, I, I believe it's pronounced Zaytun, back in 1968. Are you familiar with this? I am, and I find it one of the most interesting cases of Marian apparitions. Now, the church looks at Marian apparitions. There are thousands of reports of sightings of the Virgin Mary all the time, and they examine those the way they consider the intercessory miracles for uh, candidates for sainthood. And so there are authenticated uh, apparitions of Mary, and there are unauthenticated cases, cases that look convincing that the church doesn't put the official stamp on. And that's the case uh, from Egypt here. Zaytun is a, a suburb of Cairo, and um, there were 70, uh, actually more than 70 apparitions uh, of Mary that appeared uh, around St. Mary's Coptic Church. And many people saw these. Um, the figure was a woman uh, uh, in dazzling white, uh, and the figure would hover over the church. What makes this case very interesting is that photographs were taken uh, and film was taken, and these photographs have have never been debunked, and they're they're quite dramatic. Uh, you can find them on the internet, and uh, one of the most dramatic is is a figure which looks like this dazzling woman in white, um, in the air with the church in in the background, and. Um, uh, it was estimated that between a quarter of a million and a half a million people saw these apparitions uh, over over this period of time. Now, uh, one strange thing about the appearances of Mary is that they just sort of spring up spontaneously, and sometimes they're uh, presented to masses of people and sometimes just to a few, like uh, the way Fatima started out, um, and they go on for a while, maybe a few days, maybe over a year, and then suddenly stop. And uh, Egypt um, stretched from 68 to 69. Medjugorje, which started in 1981, that's still going on, uh, apparitions of Mary. And um, there were also other aerial phenomena that people saw in, in uh, Egypt. Uh, there were smells of sweet incense, again, which is associated with sanctity, um, people saw clouds of incense and light shooting across the sky, um, objects that you might call UFOs even, uh, silvery uh, orbs and uh, lights moving around in the sky that would accompany these apparitions. And um, they would last for uh, a minute or more, which is a long time for, for these experiences. This this apparition in in Cairo is a little different from uh, let's say Guadalupe or Fatima in another way, and that is that that uh, Egypt is it's not a Catholic country, they're they're Orthodox or it's a branch of Orthodox, the Orthodox Church. It's the Coptic Orthodox uh, Church, uh, and and this one was uh, declared to be an actual real apparition by the, the the Orthodox Pope of Alexandria, but the, the Catholic Church has yet to sort of weigh in officially on this one. And interestingly, the first witnesses to the apparition were Muslims. Ah, that is interesting. Very interesting. Let me ask you the, I guess, the uh, 
the big pink elephant in the room question on, on the Marian apparitions. And that is because you mentioned um, unidentified flying objects uh, that have been seen in connection with these apparitions. What do, what does your your uh, gut tell you? Are we are we dealing with a, an apparition of the Virgin Mary, or is it some sort of an alien deception? What do you think? Well, it could be, and that argument has been made. Um, ufologists certainly have looked at um, these manifestations as um, maybe uh, something of an ET nature. Um, the, the thing about them, though, is that um, they have a purpose of, of galvanizing people to um, spiritual faith. Uh, and even you don't have to be Christian to be affected by them. Uh, and is that a purpose of ETs? Um, would some ETs have that, um, want to undertake that, that kind of, of disguise uh, in, in order to organize people, especially around religious faith. Um, but it is odd that so many of these apparitions, and that, that's what the church calls them, uh, apparitions, they are accompanied by rafts of unusual aerial activity. Uh, so um, does a, a portal open up? And we get multiple kinds of phenomena coming in. Uh, that's a possibility too. But they do seem to be very targeted to um, to religious faith. Uh, Mary will often issue statements uh, to the visionaries uh, to pray more. Um, she might chastise people for the way the world is is uh, uh, being run with so much violence and that bad things are going to happen if we don't shape up. Uh, so um, the interesting thing is that some ETs have those messages, too. Shape up or the world is, uh, you know, uh, not, not going to survive. That's right. You mentioned strange aerial phenomena. Now, it reminded me of Sally Fields and the Flying Nun. Do you remember that show? Oh, I do. Yes. Yeah. I know she'd like to forget it, but um, I remember <laughs> remember watching it. And uh, that is sort of reminiscent of, I don't know if they took their inspiration from Joseph, Joseph of Capertino. Um, this was an Italian saint who seemed to have a remarkable gift of levitation and, and flight. Well, he certainly was the extreme. There are there are many saints who were reported to levitate, which would be just kind of a little bounce up into the air. But according to stories, Joseph Copertino could uh, go way up in the air and hover for extended periods of time. Um, he was um, he had kind of an interesting background. He's a very poor student. Uh, he went around so much with his mouth open all the time that he earned the nickname the Gaper. Oh dear! And found his home in the uh, Franciscan order, um, but he was not popular with with his uh, fellow monks because almost anything of a spiritual nature, a church bell ringing or incense burning, could send him into these raptures where he would you know, bounce around in the air, and it got to be very distracting. Nobody wanted him around during Mass or church services, and he was confined to a room with with a private chapel for many years of his life. In fact, he got shunted around from monastery to monastery because nobody wanted him. But he even levitated in front of a pope, I think was Pope Urban, um, might have been Urban VIII. Um, He went to kiss the pope's foot, and levitated into the air. Uh, one of the things I, I find interesting about his case is if, if this is, if the levitation was a resulting phenomenon of his spiritual practice and connection to the divine, why do we not see levitating saints today? Um, we have degrees of levitation in, in yogic practices. Yes, yes, the flying um, yogis. Flying yogis, but it's more more like a hopping, you know. It's, uh, you can't have everything, Rosemary. But you kind of hop up into the air. Whereas the stories of Joseph was, you know, he was literally like a bird, uh, and he could hover up in the trees. And he's unique. He's really unique in sainthood. 
Pope John Paul, just uh, we just got a couple, a couple minutes here, like two minutes here, but Pope John Paul II, has he been beatified yet? I do not know, off the top of my head. But if he is at some point, because I know they were moving in that direction, if he is, will they exhume him? Is that part of the process to beatification? With the popes, I believe it's different. They have tombs in the Vatican, in St. Peter's Cathedral. There's a lower level where the popes are entombed, because the pope is automatically considered a saint. So I doubt they'll be digging him up. I'm trying to think of any other popes who got dug up, and uh, I can't think of any. (laughs) All right, well, we'll leave them be then. Rosemary, always a pleasure. And again, the website, visionaryliving.com. We'll talk to you next month. Okay, thank you, Richard. Always a pleasure. Likewise. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, rest in peace, dear friend. Okay, before I say goodnight to the moon over Messenia, I'll be back to tell you a little bit about what's in store on episode 268. Hey, if you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, you're going to want to check out my brand new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet Shop. There's an exclusive line of men and women's classic tees with a very cool design. It's a limited run and a limited time offer, a special price of $21 US. That lasts only until August the 19th. There are also mugs, tote bags, and stickers. Go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and find the Strange Planet Shop button at the bottom of the page. The Strange Planet Shop at strangeplanet.ca. It's a strange planet. Wear the shirt. Take the journey. Coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited, Lying Wonders and Strangest Things with journalist Michael Harold Brown. I think we're talking about, in many of these cases, metadimensional phenomena as opposed to something that's physical or physiological. And it's not only that, it's not only the supernatural or the alleged extraterrestrial that I deal with in this book, but also just the oddest things around the world, whether it's the strange number 11 that a lot of people seem to think uh, shows up at apropos and sometimes bizarre times, or, or whether it's It's just the oddest coincidences that I could find, really extraordinary stuff that goes beyond really ready explanations. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. Kalinikta. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.